Gary and I are both basically hermits at heart, so we don't go out, we don't see anybody, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I um, Today we're going to be taking questions from members of Northwest Indiana DSA and also Northern Indiana DSA. So they're kind of all over the place, but they're just stuff that there, there'll be questions that people had asked from the chapters. Thank you for joining us, Noam. We appreciate your time. Let's start with a broad and basic question about DSA. This one from Allison Warkentine. What can an organization like DSA do that would make a difference? What are your hopes for DSA, and what are historical parallels for organizations like the DSA? Well, I think the DSA could become a major force in the United States, both culturally and intellectually, and also at the activist uh, level, uh, pressing forward, not only on badly needed reforms, which are critical even for survival, but also envisioning a, a future society which people can strive for and use as guidelines in their practical activities. Now, this could be a, it's a kind of, it's a role that the labor unions to some extent at one point used to play. Uh, it's uh, kind of regarded like uh, kind of a, a cell, a, a sector from which uh, ideas are promulgated and activities are based and pressed forward. Uh, in, and uh, reaching out to other progressive elements, which can become a kind of confederation of progressive forces. Maybe this could be the center of them. And do you think that there's a way to replace traditional labor organizing, or that still obviously has to happen, but that something like DSA can bolster those efforts? I think it has to happen. I mean, after all, it's going to be a little bit different because of the deindustrialization of the neoliberal period, but uh, I don't think the United States should or will give up manufacturing industry, but service industries are much more substantial. Uh, the new labor organizing and labor activism in recent years has been, even in non-unionized areas like teachers, teacher strikes, uh, militantly unionized areas like nurses. And it's uh, moved on to infect the, you know, the, the uh, broader areas like the GM strike. But I think what should be aimed for is something like what Tony Mizaki was trying to do. Uh, Mizaki was, was the head of the uh, oil, uh, chemical, atomic workers union. He's one of the first environmentalists back in the early 70s pressing very hard with the union solidly behind him for uh, uh, dealing with environmental issues. Members of the union are right on the front line about that. And uh, also for substantial, even radical social change, trying to integrate them. In the 90s, Mizaki tried to form a labor party, which could have taken off uh, based on the unions, uh, his union and the lead, but others as well, and other sectors of society uh, resisting the neoliberal assault, wanting to go on to more radical changes. You know, the party couldn't quite make it, but I think it should be revitalized. But, you know, historically, the labor movement has been in the forefront of uh, just about every. Change, uh, uh, progressive change, and also visions for the future. And that's, I don't think, I see how it can fail to be. And it could bring in sectors that you know, it was very hard. In the early days of the labor movement, uh, the, the Knights of Labor days, some of their first activities were to try to integrate uh, black and white workers, agricultural workers, others. That can come back with the growing minority communities. You can see very effectively how this might work 
So take, say, the last elections. There were some pretty interesting things that happened, which didn't have to happen that way. So in South Texas, uh, sectors which are mostly Mexican-American, uh, for the first time in a century, first time in a sense party, uh, voted Republican. And they had reasons. Uh, the Democrats were offering nothing. Uh, what they heard and could see is that Joe Biden wants to take away their jobs and destroy their industry. It's an oil country. Uh, if somebody, something like Tony Mizaki's union had been around, they would have been organizing down there and, sit and making it clear, look, it's a fact of life that we're going to get off oil. Even the big oil companies know that. It's either that or death. So we're going to get off oil. And here are some constructive programs that you can follow, which will give you better jobs, better life, livable community, future for your children. Here's what they are. Somebody had been doing that in this election. They'd have voted for Biden. Some future election, they could vote for a Labour Party. And I think DSA could be closely associated, even central to these activities, providing ideas, activists, organizing experience, militant participation. All of these could come from an organized DSA from uh, center. For people who are specifically concerned with labor organizing, are there sectors of the economy that you think are far more strategic to sort of target than other sectors of the economy? Well, one thing that shouldn't be overlooked is uh, tentative arrangements that are being developed. I don't know how far they've gone between the Steelworkers Union and Mondragon. It's huge worker-owned conglomerate in the best country in Spain, uh, moving towards the idea of so of worker-owned, worker-managed enterprises in the United States in areas where this neoliberal globalization project has sort of forced industry out. Uh, they're starting to work in niches that are left in the service economy because that could expand. And it could expand to major conglomerates of the Mondragon type. Uh, I think that's something that can be pressed. Another thing is uh, working together with the uh, uh, oil workers who are going to have to transition and can be moved into developing a productive, uh, effective, sustainable energy industry. That the, and this is pretty important. I mean, the you know, even the big oil companies know that they are not going to be in business for long. But why leave it to them to create a sustainable energy economy which will work for them? Why not develop our own that works for working people and communities? I think that's a big growing area. It's going to have an enormous effect on the economy. They can be moving into battery development, research and development. They can tie up with the research institutions that are on the forefront of trying to develop the technology of the future could all be integrated. But with labor movement initiative and a center, something else that should be done is to restore the lively programs of worker education that used to exist. I mean, I can remember this even from childhood. My, my family are mostly uh, uh, first-generation immigrants uh, never had any formal education. Some of them didn't even graduate elementary school. But the worker education and the cultural programs that the unions were organizing made them among the most cultured people I've ever met. Uh, and that's traditional. You go way back, say, to the 19th century. It was normal. I mean, uh, it's a literate population. Maybe it was illiterate, but uh, they were educated. The workmen uh, were writing the most advanced tracts and how to uh, create a labor-based economy to struggle against the contract labor system, which they regarded as basically slavery, 
attacking their liberty. Let's create a collective commonwealth, cooperative commonwealth. It was ordinary working people with often with no former education who were doing this. And it was widespread among the uh, working class community, which is now, you know, has been lost to this. It's separated from the advanced high culture that they ought to be participating in. And in fact, you know, intellectuals used to do this. It was considered normal for left intellectuals to be giving talks and worker education programs or writing books for the general public, books like Mathematics for Dominion, let's say. Hodgkin's was a mathematician, it was meant to give working people understanding and ability even to participate in developing the technological, scientific, intellectual culture. There's no reason why that shouldn't be revitalized. That's a great, great point, Noam, and it's one of the reasons why we opened the community center here in Michigan City, uh, precisely for that reason, to provide a space where we could have film screenings, art installations, poetry slams. We watch even boxing matches and baseball games here. We have barbecues. I mean, we're trying to incorporate all of those things under one roof so we could create a community that goes beyond just what I think sometimes we find in the political world is almost a transactional relationship, and I don't think that that's really helpful if we're trying to build the kind of bonds and trust that are needed to develop serious, I think, political efforts. Absolutely. You have to develop from people's interests and concerns and on from there. And they kind of easily go on. Yeah. Yep. Okay, switching gears a little bit, this question, a series of questions from Rob and Sarah Johnson. First, what does Noam think of dialectical reasoning, Hegelian or Marxian? Does he think it's even a useful way of thinking? I can't answer because I don't know what it is. Term that Marx himself barely used, if at all, and Engels used it. But what is it? As far as I know, it's just rational thinking. You look at alternatives, try to compare them, improve them. I don't know anything beyond that, whatever term you give it. Does it make sense to, I'm a, maybe this is in the same line, this is from the same set of questions, does it make sense to have a philosophy of history and what is worth keeping, remembering, or using from Marx's thought? Sure, we should, we should have an understanding of history, whether it's a philosophy of history, I don't know. Uh, Marx had a very acute critical analysis of the essential core features of capitalism, studying it in an abstract way that is pretty standard for the sciences. It's not the way it means you have to apply it to what actually works, which is the actual situation, which of course will deviate from the abstract pictures, but the concepts in it are very useful concepts like class struggle, alienation, exploitation, uh, value, the difference between value and price, uh, all of these concepts are very useful. And, and he, of course, Marx himself was an activist. He applied them and he was organizing the first international and forefront of it. It was, it was not a remote utopian thought. He's trying to integrate these things. We should be doing the same. Revolutions often end up empowering, this is also from uh, Rob Johnson, revolutions often end up empowering less moral, more pragmatic, ambitious, and more ruthless authoritarians. He names Napoleon, Lenin, uh, and some others. Uh, what do you make of these figures? And it is, is it correct to say that revolutions uh, eat their children? First of all, every one of these revolutionary takeovers you can think of was in an international context where there were forces of, uh, there were counter forces. I mean, that's actually even true of the American Revolution. It wasn't, you know, was, there were significant class struggle uh, right at, at the core of the American Revolution. Um, and even over the Constitution, there was a class struggle. Uh, the framers of the Constitution were wealthy men. Uh, who else could stay in Philadelphia for a couple of months 
at a time when you couldn't travel more than a couple of miles and you had to be working. It was wealthy men, mostly slave owners. They wanted a constitution which would, they're very frank about it. Madison put it, it has to uh, protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. Uh, Hamilton, the other major framer, said we have to, the constitution must uh, protect property against the, the uh, depredations of the general public. Uh, and there was a struggle and the basic theme of the constitution, you look at the convention iterated over and over is that preservation of the rights of property is the core function of government. Plenty of people weren't buying that. Uh, the people who couldn't travel to Philadelphia, uh, the farmers, uh, backwoodsmen, uh, most of the population showed up every once in a while in rebellions like Shays Rebellion. Uh, but uh, what happened in Philadelphia was aptly described by the major scholarly work on the topic. Michael Clarman's book is kind of the gold standard in scholarship. Very interesting book on the details of the Constitutional Conventions worth reading. And the title of the book is The Framers Coup against democracy. The framers carried out a coup against democracy in many ways, like there was a big battle during the, revol the, the, the revolutionary, the, the liberation struggle. There was tremendous debt piled up. Well, the debt was owned by rich speculators. They wanted stable currency. The people who paid the debt, workers, uh, farmers, mostly farmers in those days, uh, backwoodsmen and so on, they, they didn't want stable currency. They wanted paper currency, which would depreciate and the speculators would lose money and they wouldn't be impoverished. It was a major battle during the uh, Constitutional Convention and the rich won. Uh, Article one of the Constitution says, can't have paper money. Uh, there were, and there's a class basis for that. Well, these struggles go on right through history, uh, going on right in front of our eyes. What's the shape of the post-pandemic world going to be? Same struggle. Um, but that's all through history. The, uh, uh, there are, we should understand the nature of the continuing class struggles, take different forms, be attuned to them. It's in our own history. But going back to the revolution, the American uprising for, uh, left the fighters on the front line hanging out to dry. It was the rich and powerful who gained from it. Actually, Madison himself realized it a couple of years later, back in early 1790s, a couple of years after the Constitution was framed, he wrote a very interesting letter to Jefferson in which he said, it's all eroding before our eyes, uh, the uh, country's being taken over by what he called stock jobbers, that's the financial institutions, uh, who are the tools and tyrants of government. They're, they overwhelm government with their largesse and combinations, and they set its policies. That sound familiar? I think that's 1790 or so. Uh, and so. And they're also external forces. In the case of the American Revolution, uh, the, uh, the American Revolution was regarded as a very great danger by the, to the statesmen of Europe. Uh, King George III of England thought it's going to erode the British Empire, the domino theory. Others will follow suit. Uh, Metternich and those guys said we have to stop the danger of republicanism, the Haitian Revolution, first revolution of free men, not women, but free men. Uh, ever. Well, that was crushed by force, uh, total international force. Uh, France, of course, Britain, Spain, United States all moved in to crush it. And that's what happened with the anarchist revolution in Spain. So uh, the, the attack on it was led by the communists, the fascists were attacking it, the liberal democracies were attacking it. And the case of Russia, you can debate just what the factors were. 
but it was immediately attacked by an invasion, a major war. Uh, so fight that off at the same time when trying to maybe something of the revolutionary year of 1917. There were also internal forces that crushed the revolutionary process. It never happened in a, you know, in a vacuum. Right. So these are all things to look at. I don't think it tells you much about the nature of revolution. And that tells you something about the the domestic and international context in which this struggle to change society takes place. We see it everywhere. Take the pink, pink tide in Latin America. It wasn't a revolution, but it was a significant move towards the left that came down very hard pressures. Uh, Brazil, there was basically a coup. Uh, other countries, something similar. There's a parrot. Are there you is. hearing? <laughs> I am hearing. Parrot, the <laughs> if you listen carefully, he may even say, sovereignty to the people of all nations. Valeria <laughs> talks them in Portuguese. <laughs> this is somewhat tied to, to something you had said about uh, both anarchism, but also revolutions, and that is, the, this person wants to know what your thoughts were on Murray Bookchin's ideas uh, and the groups, both American anarchists and Syrian rebels, that he inspired. Were you aware of him in the 60s? Did you know him, ever speak with him? I never spoke with him, but I read his work. A lot of very interesting work, even on technology and how it could develop and have a more liberatory function. Interesting work. Then his further developments on a kind of sort of a kind of anarcho-communism. Uh, my own feeling is that those ideas, he he took them to be a, kind of like a battle against other forms of uh, anarchist or development. I don't see any reason why uh, community self-organization and uh, the labor cont worker control of industry can't be integrated and become a single construct that will develop with mutual mutual support never regarded these i think this common themes and those i think should be pursued let me just say a word about rojava it's uh, what was achieved there was pretty remarkable if you consider the context in which it was happening the murder civil war uh, it was instituted in a kind of a strange way from the top what happened is that Ojalan, who's now in prison, had been a deeply committed Stalinist. And while in prison, he was reading all sorts of things, came across Bookchin's work, was apparently intrigued by it. Essentially gave the order in a authoritarian fashion to the Kurdish groups who had been following his Stalinist line to move towards a Bookchin style uh, social anarchism with strong feminist elements. And they picked it up and did a lot of, uh, it's very hard to get serious information, but looked like very interesting things. Yeah. And they're trying to go on. Actually, just a couple of days ago, I gave uh, the inaugural lecture at a Rojava University. So, they're not giving up. Wow. So they've started their own university there. That's quite something, under circumstances that I think few of us can uh, can really fathom. Oh, so the other thing that happened is that here I differ from a lot of my leftist friends. Uh, I, I, I thought it was a bad mistake to withdraw the small contingent of U.S. troops from El Rojava. I mean, it basically threw them under the bus, so gave, threw them into the hands of their most bitter enemies, you know, Turks, and then later the Assad regime. And, I, and they're, they're surviving. It was a, makes the struggle much harder. It was also a very vicious thing to do. You know, the Kurdish forces had been on the, you know, they had been the ones fighting the campaign against ISIS. The United States had a scattering of special forces and, of course, air power, but they were the ground fighters. And I think about 10,000 of them were killed. So after 
they've done their job, let's give them to the Turks to massacre. That's what it meant to withdraw that small deterrent force. It wasn't there as an imperialist endeavor. We have to be careful not to just follow formulas without thinking what they mean. That's a very, very important point, Noam, and I think this gets back to whether or not people want to approach situations ideologically and dogmatically or whether they want to take into account any number of factors while trying to maintain our principles best we can, um, but also to understand that we live in a very complex world and that there aren't... Uh, you, have to, you have to ask yourself, what are the human consequences of what you're doing? Yep. Not only just because you want to be a decent human being, but even for narrow tactical reasons, you're not going to reach people and uh, uh, try to help them move forward, organize them, if you don't take their interests into account. Why should they pay any attention to you? Yep. 100%. I couldn't agree more. Samuel Love asks, I'm curious what strategic changes need to occur on the left to prevent another January 6th Type situation. So here he's referring to the Capitol Hill um, attempted insurrection, whatever whatever people want to refer to it as. What impact did January sixth have on Chomsky's political thinking, if at all? Well, I think it's uh, it's an interesting. I mean, there was plainly an attempted coup. Can't deny that the goal of at least the elements that were in the front. Plenty of people were just swept, swept around in the cloud. But those who were really thinking about what they were doing, the attempt was clearly to overturn an election, install a non-elected government. That's a coup. Uh, to say, well, look, it's not like the kind of coups we carry out in uh, our colonies where the military takes over and tortures people and slaughters everyone's on. Yeah, it wasn't that, but that doesn't change the fact there was an attempted coup. Secondly, the people who were carrying it out believed in what they were doing. I mean, there have been pretty careful investigations, more in the papers today, in fact. They're dedicated to what they're doing. They believe the election, their hero, was undermined by the deep state, you know, whoever it may be, and he's the legitimate president and they're saving democracy. That's what we have to go at, not just the ideas. It's not just enough to say the QAnon ideas are crazy. Where's it coming from? If you're a leftist, you're supposed to be a radical. You look for the roots. Where's all this coming from? Well, it's coming from somewhere. Now travel through a rural community in the United States. The stores are closed. Industries, small industries moved out. The young people are leaving because there's nothing to do. This is rotting away. That's where they're coming from. They're coming from 40 years of neoliberal assaults on the general population, which have had a major effect on our leading. We can, I don't have to tell you, you know, as well or better than I do what all the numbers are. But just to give a couple of indications, real male wages are actually lower than they were in 1979. Uh, around the majority of the populations living from paycheck to paycheck, uh, precarious jobs, benefits have declined. Uh, latest estimate of wealth transfer, what they call wealth transfer, robbery is the better name, uh, from the lower 90% of the population to the ultra-riches on the order of $50 trillion over 40 years. Yep. That affects people's lives. It's lead to a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, justified, contempt for institutions, which is justified, and skepticism about institutions, all justified. That's been smashing them in the face for years. The Democrats don't do anything for them. And they sort of abandoned the working class half a century ago to whatever extent they had a commitment. Fertile terrain for demagogues can come along and say, I'm your saver, follow me, I love you, stab you in the back with the other hand. And uh, it's coming from that. 
Well, if you want to deal with it, go to where it's coming from. They either induce the Democrats to become a party that works for the public, for the working class and working people, middle class and so on, with real programs. Like what I was saying about the oil workers in the South and South Texas. Either that or create a third party that will do it. Now that will undercut the sources from which this anger and frenzy comes and turns into very dangerous antisocial directions. Could turn into brown troops. You know, right. But it could also turn into a social democratic force which would move the country forward significantly. And there's an awful lot to be done. You know, if you just think about it, I mean, there's a commentator in the London Financial Times, a major business journal in the world, who sort of jokingly, but not entirely, said if Bernie Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the Christian Democrat Party program, the Conservative Party. And you look at his main slogans, the policies, proposals, I mean, they're an indication of how regressive the United States has become. So his main program is universal health care. Everybody has universal health care. I mean, Mexico has it, Brazil, Germany, everybody. That's considered too radical for Americans. That's where we are. A free higher education, rich countries, poor countries, it's all over the place. We used to have something like it in the United States back in the 50s when it was a much poorer country. The GI Bill was basically free, even subsidized higher education. Did the country become a, a gulag? You know, I mean, it's just uh, normal conservative policies to try to press them here, is to try to enter the modern world. And there's uh, there's a tremendous amount to be done, and I think. Uh, these are the, if you want to deal with the people who are storming the Capitol, ask why they're doing it, where it's coming from, and go after those roots. I mean, some of it is white supremacy, racism, and xenophobia, and so on. But there's a lot more. And even those, those things, they rise at periods of distress. Often otherwise, they're suppressed. So you go back to major eras of, say, labor organizing, CIO organizing in the 1930s. That was done in solidarity. Blacks and whites may have in the past been at each other's throats, but in the course of uh, labor organizing, the white supremacy was itself suppressed in, in favor of common action for the common good. What can happen? Actually, we saw it after the Floyd murder. There was a lot of interracial solidarity. Uh, blacks were in leading the demonstrations. Plenty of whites were participating actively. Can be overcome. And it had the support of about two-thirds of the population. It wasn't marginal. Yes, and I think we could have kept that same level of support if we would have went into the mobilizations with, I think, more disciplined organizations that were uh, capable of performing strategic acts of nonviolent civil disobedience instead of some of the other things that manifest. And I understand those things, but I'm, I'm speaking now as like, you know, as an organizer, it seemed very clear to me that public opinion shifted. And as a matter of fact, Noam, the same report that you were citing from the Grand Valley, or from the Rio Grande Valley in southern Texas, one of the complaints was about the oil fields. You know, people Latinos were scared that the oil jobs were going to go away. Uh, one of their other complaints was that they were scared that the police were going to be abolished or that the police were going to be defunded. Um, That's an important thing. Now, there was a real opportunity lost, and the right wing picked it up and ran with it. I mean, the phrase defund the police had a positive interpretation that could have gotten great support, but it was handed over to the right wing. 
they're going to take the police away. You know, somebody's going to rob your home. They loved it. I mean, actually what uh, Ocasio-Cortez said was pretty interesting. She, she was asked, what do you mean by defund the police? She said, go to a white suburb. That's defund the police. If a kid has a drug problem, they don't throw him in jail or beat him up. And they try to do something about it. Uh, the police don't come into your home if there's a domestic dispute, maybe social workers do. Okay. That's the kind of defund the police that the police would support yeah. and the communities would support. And it could lead to a much better, a much better you know, society. But the slogan was taken, handed over to the right wing. They ran with it and it had exactly the effects you described. That doesn't have to be done. Serious organizing would not do that. I agree. And I also would say that serious organizing would go into those mass mobilization moments, having a clear and and sort of disciplined and strategic nonviolent focus. So, you know, again, I do I have anything against smashing a window at Starbucks? No, I could care less. But to me, if it doesn't achieve the goal that we're trying to achieve and if it's t- turning people off, then I don't want anything to do with it. That's right. And it's easy to give uh, the right wing gifts by just pursuing things that are worth pursuing, but doing it in a manner which is just going to alienate them. Yep. A lot of so-called identity politics is having that effect. It is. It's one of the, in my opinion, one of the uh, biggest barriers to getting poor and working class people that we know, you know, from we live in a in deindustrialized area of northwest Indiana that used to have 200 or I'm sorry, 120,000 union steelworking jobs. Today we have 15,000, uh, you know, opioid, opioid problems in our city of Michigan City. We've got a coal fired power plant a casino that's one of the largest employers. We've got a heroin problem. We've got a maximum security prison where people sit on death row, on and on. I mean, so the the type of people that we're trying to bring into the mix, you know, when you hit them with stuff like, um, you know, say something like queer theory or something like this, these, these types of things, they don't, not only do they not resonate, but it really, it creates a cultural barrier where people go, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about and what they're talking about isn't what I'm thinking about when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. It can be done in a different way. You can say, look, people have a right to be whatever they want to be. Right. It doesn't bother me. They want to act like that. That's fine. Let's be sympathetic to one another, find out what where common interests are. Maybe the people working on queer theory want to join us in developing it self-managed cell phone enterprise, which will be, uh, lead to better work for, and better lives for all of us. If they want to do something else on the side, like me wanting to do what I want to do on the side, okay, not my business. Right. That that's, that's makes a lot of sense. Okay, another one from Gnome. Combined, uh, I'm sorry, not from Gnome, but from Olivier. Combined question here. The Trump years are marked by a considerable degradation of our political language, combined with a weaponizing of political ideology. It seems that that is in line with the way that neoliberal and conservative revolution has reshaped the world. How can we, co- how can we collectively address this? How do we address this language of the right being used by even some of our democratic politicians? Well, the word collectively address is the answer. We should be collectively using these concepts the right way and bringing to people an understanding that this is what's being done to you. Here's a way to get out of it in a constructive fashion. And the questioner is right to connect this with the whole neoliberal, the Trump, the, not just Trump, but the whole 40 years of which he's the, which he's turned it into a horror, into a monstrosity. Uh, I mean, the basic thrust of neoliberalism is to make people stupid, ignorant, and isolated. Remember the early slogans, there's no society, just a lot of isolated individuals thrown out into the marketplace to survive somehow. Uh, maybe they'll make it, maybe they won't, nobody's business. Uh, don't get together, don't talk to each other, 
Actually, Marx had a comment about this. Margaret Thatcher probably didn't know that she was paraphrasing Marx when she said there's no society. Uh, Marx and his criticism of the autocratic rulers of in the 19th, in the 18, mid 19th century, the autocratic rulers who were trying to suppress uh, activist militant left groups. He said that what they want to do is turn society into a sack of potatoes, isolated people, no connections, no society. That's smart. That's one of the reasons why Reagan and Thatcher in their first acts went after the unions. Let's destroy the unions, the means that people have, not only to protect themselves, but even to get together to think, have ideas. You're sitting alone, uh, you know, with uh, TV nonsense pouring into your head. You can't think, you can't work things out. You're sitting together in a, uh, with your co-workers in the union trying to figure out serious policies, yeah, you become an educated person with ideas. So uh, all of these things integrate. This is right in line with that, Noam, and that's a question from Sarah Zawacki uh, and Brett Short, and that is, what is the best course of action when planning a media structure? So to summarize this question, because it's somewhat long, existing media we know is a problem, and I think a lot of us had a lot of hope for alternative independent media, say, five, maybe even 10, 15 years ago. One of the problems we've seen in the era of social media and since the 2016 election is that people are having a really hard time trusting any media outlet. So they, as I'm sure you're aware of the recent polling that came out, people distrust corporate media outlets, people distrust government-run media outlets, and they're increasingly becoming distrustful of social media outlets as well. What would you do or what are your thoughts on like creating a media infrastructure uh, that can support our work? Is this something that the state could have a hand in getting maybe subsidies from the state? Uh, or is this something that should take place independently of? Well, actually, uh, it's another respect in which we are very different from other societies. I mean, there's been a, the United States to an unusual extent is a, business-run society. And one of the consequences of that we see in the media, it's one of the very few countries that doesn't have some kind of public media. Uh, when radio came into the scene in the 1920s, it was a major struggle about whether radio should be, radio's public, is the, you know, the uh, airwaves are basically publicly owned. Should it be given as a gift to private corporations, RCA, others, or should it be uh, devoted, should it be offered to communities, to uh, political groups, to social groups, cultural groups, to develop in their own way, which is a possibility. And should there be national, uh, national uh, media, uh, which can be as democratic as the society is, kind of more democratic society can be more open and productive. Uh, well, we know who won that. The same battle was carried out with television. End result is the United States is almost alone in the world and it doesn't have public media. That can be changed. And it can be changed by public subsidy. And for those who, and here we can go to the people who hold up the constitution, say, holy writ, say, yeah, you're right. The founders, the framers wanted public subsidy for public media, general media, for a variety of media. It was called the post office. That's why the post office is in the constitution. It provided about what the main function of the post office, most of its business was providing cheap, uh, uh, effectively a subsidy to the varied, complex mil uh, activist press, press by allowing them to distribute freely, almost free. That's the post office. Why shouldn't we have the same thing? A subsidy that some work it out the way you want, but what amounts to 
public subsidy for the general population. Uh, they can work out their own media systems with their own participation. And there have been periods in the United States when public media locally controlled were very significant and lively. You go back and take a look at the labor press in the late 19th century. Vibrant, lively, run by working people, a lot of it run by young women called factory girls at the time, women who driven off the farms, worked in the mills, had their own press, uh, connected up with a populist movement, not today's populism, the authentic radical farmers movement started in Texas, Kansas, also their own journals. You read the journals of the Knights of Labor, it's remarkable. Serious thinking about a cooperative commonwealth which would overcome the attack, the fundamental attack on human rights, which we call having a job. Fundamental attack on human rights. You're dependent on a master for most of your life. No free person can accept that. We want to develop an alternative cooperative commonwealth of participation. The labor press was all full of that. That can be the kind of press now it'll be adapted to our life, not early industrial revolution, but it's the kind of media that people could participate in and trust in. And the disc, I should say that I've been myself a pretty harsh critic of the major media, but we shouldn't go overboard. That's the main source of information that we can receive. Uh, you may pick up your news on Facebook, but Facebook doesn't have reporters in the field. Yeah. And those reporters are often are very good people doing serious, courageous work, gets filtered, gets shaped by the power system, but there's plenty of stuff there. You want to know about the world? That's where you got to go. That's a really important point, Noam. We need more nuance in that field because I think people have just whole thrown entire sections of the media to the side. And I don't think that's helpful. And one of the reasons why I think this is really important is because in this fragmented media landscape, I think it creates more and more alienation. And it also creates more and more animosity as people become sort of insulated within their own little reality that they can create through their own, you know, YouTube videos, their social media friends, and this creating a sense of social unity and collectivity and solidarity was also at the core of the idea of the postal union that the postal un that I'm sorry that the post office itself was going to function as this entity to bring us together as a nation to give us some sense of connectivity and identity as a as a body uh, politic. That's absolutely right, and that's why there's such an attack on the post office. Yeah. Bipartisan attack. I um, mean, the post office is subjected to regulations and conditions which make it almost impossible to function. They do an amazing job considering the uh, constraints that have been imposed on them by bipartisan Congress. The post office, I mean, in many places, the post office is a place where we, you go to a rural community, a small community somewhere. Post office where you go to meet your friends. Yeah. Should be a place where you put your money. You don't have to go to a commercial bank. You should have a bank account right there. And it should be a place where a lot of free, free, cheap, of varied media are around. It should be a place that we can have your insurance. Well, it should be. It can be a center of life. Furthermore, you know the postal workers. Like in many communities, I've sometimes lived in them. You know, you can't. Uh, uh, you're not feeling well, you can't take your dog out, postal worker will take him out for you, things like that. It's part of a general community of solidarity and mutual aid. Just what power systems want to break up to turn you into a sack of potatoes. That can be resisted. Post office could be a main center of it. You said the word, I'm surprised that you uh, said it out loud, but... Um... You said D-O-G, and I was very surprised that you said that word out loud because I expected your furry friend to speak up. 
Unfortunately, they're sleeping at the moment. <laughs> I uh, I know we're I know we're running out of time with you. I have just a couple more questions. This one is totally well. Let me stick on track because there's a friend. He's a great activist with DSA here, and we just met him a couple years ago, Baylor. And I know he has a question that's a little off the beaten path. So I want to stick with politics for the second to last question. This is something that I would like to ask because I hear people talk about going back to sort of pre-colonial times, people who talk about, um, you know, going back to hunter-gatherer societies. I think that the intention is good. I think people look at a situation and they go, these systems have created so much pain and suffering that isn't there a way to just go back? You know, I don't think that these are like malicious people, but I do think that we have to live and deal with the contradictions that we face today, that there is no way to sort of go back in time to some better period. Uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and if you, how would you respond to the people who propose those sort of things? Well, what we, I think the proper, I think there's something right about it. There's something right in those societies. We have to find a way to work it into our society. And it's very critical I mean, suppose you're interested in, as we all should be, in heating of the planet. Well, one substantial contributing factor is industrial agriculture and in industrial meat production and so on. That can be overcome in many ways. One of them is localism. Local uh, farms, uh, part of the community. Uh, we During the Second World War, People had victory gardens. They were growing their own food and vegetables. You know, it's not a hunter-gatherer society, but it's the way in which the values of such societies can be integrated into our own. We're certainly not going to go back to hunter-gatherer life. For one thing, that would mean mass genocide at a scale that nobody's ever dreamt of. Complicated, extensive populations can't live like hunter-gatherers. But many of the values of those societies can be integrated into our own. In fact, it's kind of interesting to notice that speaking of global warming, uh, the uh, most active uh, leadership elements in the struggle to save the planet have been indigenous people, yeah. uh, First Nations, in Canada, you know, Aboriginal people in Australia, uh, tribal people in India. They're the ones who live in harmony with nature, want to preserve it, want to preserve an environment which is livable for humans, which will sustain nature. That can be done. So I think to go back, pay attention to the values. They're not ridiculous, but we live in, in this world. So we have to find a way to realize what's good about those values in our own complex societies, which are not going to go away. That is, uh, well, that's exactly why we're interviewing you, Noam, because you give the best answers. You give the most thoughtful and reasonable answers to these <laughs> difficult questions. So let me, let me end with this because I know we're coming up to an hour and we appreciate your time. Our friend Baylor, who we do have respect for, and he's a great activist, asks, what does Chomsky think of conscious realism? Or the conscious agents theory by Donald Hoffman is if consciousness is not an emergent property of the brain and the true nature of reality is inconceivable to the human mind, what does that mean for our life and death? Our most immediate knowledge and understanding is what we immediately experience. Like, I look at you on the screen, I see a person. I don't see patches of black, uh, white, uh, uh, square frame somewhere. I see a person with books on the side in the background. That's my most immediate experience. That's not what's coming to my retina. What's coming to my retina, it turns out the eye is carrying out what are called saccadic eye movements, eyes darting around all over the place. And it's getting to the points of light here and there, feeding into the brain. The first thing the brain is doing is throwing out almost all the information that comes in. The receptors are so perfectly constructed that a cell in the retina can pick up 
a photon of light, smallest amount of light. Brain can't do anything with that. So the first thing it does is throw out almost all the information that's coming in, picks out certain things, produces constructions from the way the mind is organized. Construction which says these points of light around there are a person. So what I'm experiencing is a person, but it's not what's hitting my sensory organs. It's a construct of the mind. Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not conscious. Most of our lives are unconscious thinking, activity, planning, and so on. How all this works is a, it's a deep scientific question. There's bits and pieces of it that are getting to be understood, but uh, mostly it's a huge mystery, some of the major mysteries at the outskirts of science. Uh, but it's not that the world isn't there. It's not that we're constructing the world. We are interpreting sensory stimuli in a way which is constructing our version, our interpretation of the world. My uh, canines, not to say the word because they're getting <laughs> restless, uh, they have a different world. Their world is constructed out of smells, uh, uh, different activities that they, I don't know if they, we don't know what kind of consciousness they have, but they're plainly planning things, maybe unconsciously, in terms of their way of interpreting the uh, experience that they're constructing with their mental and sensory systems. Uh, we do it our way. And we try to learn what it might be from an objective, from a third person point of view that's not our perception. Actually, that's exactly what scientists do. Now, they don't just study the way the leaves are flying around in the wind. They want to see what's actually happening in uh, highly artificial experimental situations which extract away from the world to try to get to what the principles really are that make it operate. That's science. And it's an effort to build up from that some understanding of this complex picture that we have when say I look at you on the screen. So these are by no means trivial questions. It's a major problem for people to think about and understand. And generally to go back to what we were saying before, absolutely no reason why this can't be the domain of popular working class education. Anybody can think about these things. And I've done in the past, I've often done so. You're one of the few people I, that I know of publicly who talks about these things in a way that I think everybody can understand. Would you have anyone you would recommend that people could look into whose work I think would help people better understand these topics? Um, I mean, like in my own professional field of language, there's very accessible work which takes you right into the nature of it. There's a very good work by... There's a book by friend Charles Yang called uh, The Infinite Gift, which discusses in a very sophisticated but popular way the, uh, how acquisition of language takes place and what kind of miraculous activities are being taken place. Uh, there's, a, there's a book called The Wonders of Language by another British linguist, which brings you right into the, uh, in a very accessible fashion to the, uh, uh, to the forefront of the subject, the book by, called The Boundaries of Babel, B-A-B-E-L, by a Italian linguist, Andrea Moro, a friend, he also has a book called Impossible Languages, very readable, takes you to the work that's being done in neurophysiology of language. So and all of these things that are very accessible to people, it's not out of range. I mean, it takes work to get into the technicalities, but you know, it's not beyond anybody's. In fact, the same is true of just about every area of science. So you go back in earlier years, uh, Einstein was writing popular books. Readable, very usable, accessible books. I read them with my kids when they were growing up.
Noam, thank you so much for your time. I know we've taken more than an hour, and I appreciate it. I know that you're very busy, so thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Same here. All right, take care. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.